0: episode 12 of Inside Your Head, the podcast and blog that explores psychology, mental health, neuroscience, self-help and related subjects. I'm your host, Henry Hyde, and here's a short clip from today's main interview.
1: I was very lucky. I think that um, I was part of, of a very strong, optimistic team with um, mostly sort of led by its quite charismatic experienced nurses Mm. who um, were determined to make things better for people while they were in the institution, Mm. but also um, commissioning the new services to to support people when they were transferred out of the hospital. So uh, the the job was really, um, yeah, it was very enjoyable because it was you know it was being part of a, a positive change it was it was a privilege to be part mm. of that perhaps we were kind of naive because we actually didn't know that <laughs> yeah. this thing would 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 actually change things or improve things.
0: That was the voice of Anne Goodwin. Anne is a former clinical psychologist who worked for a long time in a long-stay psychiatric hospital, what at one time would probably have been called an asylum. But then her career progressed and she started working in uh, care in the community. Uh, absolutely fascinating lady with a large number of qualifications, an extraordinary academic background in uh, uh, quite a broad spectrum of fields. Uh, but now she's a novelist. She's written three novels and has a very successful collection of short stories that's out. And uh, her novels all contain aspects of the work she used to do. So that's uh, Anne Goodwin, who's coming up later in the show. So for this episode's introductory section of the show, I'm going to talk about some recent lived experience because I think it's going to be relevant to a number of people. Um, The news being that as of yesterday I'm recording this on Sunday the 30th of January so yesterday was the 29th of January yesterday morning I woke up with a bit of a sore throat and a bit of a headache and just that kind of general feeling of mm, snuffliness and I thought oh what's this and because uh, my partner is on immunosuppressants because she has Crohn's disease I'm taking everything very cautiously, and I took a lateral flow test. And sure enough, ladies and gentlemen, I have COVID. Came as quite a shock, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, yeah, I'm in terms of what I'm actually experiencing, fortunately my symptoms are, compared to some people's, and certainly compared to previous varieties of the coronavirus bug, My symptoms are relatively mild. I've got a pretty persistent headache. I'm a bit kind of snuffly, sore throat, glands up, occasionally a bit of a cough, uh, occasionally a bit of a sneeze, uh, just a general feeling of being run down. And the main thing that I've noticed is fatigue, the slightest exertion, you know, even climbing the stairs to get up to my attic studio here it leaves me pretty exhausted uh it's an extraordinary thing an absolute feeling of being totally drained um a kind of feeling i haven't experienced to be honest since i was undergoing the radiotherapy treatment for prostate cancer um and it's a struggle to stay focused and awake um my I've, a dear friend of mine has also got coronavirus and has been suffering from it for longer than I have. Uh, she's been suffering for, um, well over a week now, I think, and has still been testing positive, which is disappointing. Um, and, um, you know, sometimes you get those wonderful autocorrect uh, kind of errors where you type in something and something totally bizarre <laughs> comes out the other end instead. And uh, she meant to say that um, she was feeling phlegmy, as in full of phlegm and mucus, Uh, but it came out as fleecy, which was very amusing. Um, And I thought, wow, uh, she's turned into a sheep. Um, No, uh, she meant to say something else, but I'm actually going to stick with the word fleecy about how the way the inside of my head feels most of the time at the moment, which is kind of. It's hard to concentrate. I'm feeling a bit sort of woolly-headed. Trying to focus on anything is requiring a lot of effort. And therefore, I'm sure you know. even after doing this podcast recording, I'm going to be pretty exhausted. But hey-ho, I wanted to make sure that I keep my promise, uh, even though I've got to a monthly schedule, that you definitely do get a podcast from me every month. So... COVID. Yes, I've got it. I'm not alone. There are a lot of people out there who are experiencing uh, much the same thing and many people who've had it far worse than I've got it. Um, but uh, it came as a shock uh, and yesterday morning when my little COVID test pack showed that I was positive, Uh, I have to admit that the next couple of hours after that were emotionally an enormous struggle. Uh, I mean, obviously for anyone, discovering that you've got COVID comes as a shock. And I think for a huge number of us, because over the last two years, we've seen those awful statistics not just in their own country here in the UK, but from around the world, there's awful statistics of vast numbers of people going down with the virus and vast numbers of people requiring hospitalisation and, sadly, huge numbers of people dying. I think it's fair to say that many of us have developed a pretty healthy kind of paranoia about the coronavirus bug. And it's only quite recently, with the emergence of this Omicron variant, which, thank goodness, seems to be much less uh, dangerous, that that situation is kind of easing. Also, thank goodness, I am triple jabbed. You know, I had the two main jabs. I think mine were the Oxford AstraZeneca, the first two. Uh Uh, last year and then towards the end of last year I had the booster jab which was I think from Pfizer so I am triple jabbed and therefore as protected as you can be and I've taken endless precautions using hand gel wearing a mask uh, you know there's a lot of people out there who've been much more blase about these things but I haven't Uh, that's one of the things that comes from having a partner who uh, particularly vulnerable and also um, my dear friend's elderly father um, has you know has had poor health for a long time and we've had reason to have even more concern about him over the last couple of months he ended up in hospital and in fact he ended up catching the coronavirus asymptomatically so the hospital said oh gosh we're rushing you into isolation and he was like i feel fine uh one of those bizarre things but it, it means the coronavirus has been very much in the forefront of our minds for quite some time and as i say i've got it my dear friend got it and uh you know it's 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 a pretty miserable thing uh having to self-isolate um Anyway, be that as it may, this, as I say, the the first couple of hours after I had my kind of diagnosis, I was in a bit of a state and it's taken me, you know, I've had to kind of, whoa, calm down, calm down, what's going on? Yeah, very unlikely to die, Henry, you know, very unlikely to be taken into hospital. Uh, But it's strange that, as I said, this kind of paranoia and fear emerged To an extent that really surprised me, and also a sense of guilt about having you know potentially putting my partner at risk. You know, I've I've, I've worked so hard at uh, making sure that she wouldn't be at risk for well two years, and then to go on my first you know business meeting, little trip out to people who you know very nice people, but obviously someone's given it to me uh i can't say for certain that's where i picked it up but i think it probably was um so came as a big shock why was it such a big shock you know i'm a big guy i'm 60 years old now i've done lots of reading about psychology i'm i'm gritty i'm resilient you know i'm a highly intelligent guy what the hell happened you know this thing just kind of bypassed my opportunity to practice kind of mindfulness and stay calm it just bypassed everything it just went bang well i'm going to bring the story back to prostat you may remember that i had prostate cancer which fortunately is still in remission uh But I was, as part of my therapy, as well as radiotherapy, I was given this drug called Prostap 3, which completely suppresses all the testosterone in your body. Uh, Because prostate cancer feeds on testosterone. So in order to stop the tumour from growing, in order to stop the disease from spreading, they basically put you on this stuff. Sometimes in tablet form, and then my first dose was in tablet form, but then in regular three monthly what are called deposit injections, where they'd get quite a big needle full of stuff and kind of stick it in a little sort of pocket pouch almost just underneath your skin. Um, and every three months, I would go back for another one. Uh, and so, gradually, what, ha- what happens is it gradually leaches out into your system on a steady. Basis and continues to suppress your testosterone. Now, I had my last dose last July, so six heading on for seven months ago, and I have still not seen any kind of return to, and I put this in inverted commas, normality, which is to say. That I still, uh, as as described about my reaction to the COVID diagnosis, get extreme emotional reactions to anything negative, and uh, find it very hard to bring those emotions back from kind of the boil down through a to a low simmer, and then you know cool them down completely. Um, it's even with huge amount of effort that I've been putting into, as I say, learning mindfulness, meditation, lots of daily calms, for example, on the car map, um, and transactional analysis. Oh gosh, something's hooked my inner not okay child. What's that? Let's do some, a uh, very adult analysis of the situation, which usually works to kind of calm things down. Um They do work, but they don't work as quickly as I would like. And this is due to the prostate. Yesterday, the shock of having the COVID diagnosis and everything that, you know, my brain just went into overdrive, like a fireworks display of, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And as I say, it took me a good couple of hours to kind of feel like I was sailing in calm waters again. And that's partly due to uh the love and care from my own partner who's extremely understanding. Bless her heart, the what she's had to put up with in the last couple of years. <clears throat> and uh my dear friends, uh, who are sisters, who got in contact and basically you know sent me loving messages and uh with one of them I was actually you know she actually said oh, do you want to have a quick chat over the phone and so we had a quick chat and that was really really helpful and I'm extremely grateful and lucky to have the support of such lovely people and also such lovely people who understand that what in you know would appear to be an emotional overreaction to certain situations is actually almost kind of nothing to do with me. That what they're witnessing is the uh, working through my system of a chemical reaction, which takes over my ability to self-regulate my emotions. Now, as I say, I've learned some pretty good tricks about, you know, whoa, okay, let's just let this stuff float away and go. And, yeah, no, I can't prevent it. I've got to feel what I'm feeling. <clears throat> let it, Just let it come out. It's exhausting, but let it come out. Breathe, calm down, <clears throat> okay? But I'm not happy about it. Of course I'm not happy about it. You know, I, I, as I said, I think anyone would find it as a bit of a shock. Oh, my God, I've, I've got the lurgy. I've got this plague that's been going around despite all my efforts to avoid it and successfully avoiding it for the last couple of years. Thank goodness. And I am, I am incredibly fortunate that I've only come down with this when it's now this less dangerous Omicron variety rather than the earlier you know, deltas and what have you, which had dire consequences for most people. So I'm kind of counting my blessings. You know, the gratitude list is very long. (laughs) And um, I'm going to be okay. You know, I know that it's a pain because I'm self-employed and it potentially could impinge on my ability to work, which is not good. I'm not going to get any sick pay. I'm not going to get any government help. So there's that and but hopefully you know a lot of people are reporting now, and the regulations have changed that potentially after five or six days, assuming please that my uh lateral flow tests on day five and then day six come back negative, uh I will basically only have been have to, having to be in confinement for let's say a week uh compared to you know previous variants where it was two weeks four weeks whatever um my poor friend who's got the virus actually has passed the five and six day mark and uh, the last i knew yesterday she told me yes yeah, she was still testing positive which is pretty depressing because she's got a heavy workload as well and she's got lots of stuff to deal with and so that's you know, really aggravating, but what are you going to do, eh? Uh, nature will take its course, and this is all new territory for all of us, isn't it? The Omicron variety and the effect it has on each of us individually, uh, I get the impression that her symptoms have been worse than mine, actually, but so far is what I have to say, and touch wood, um, but still testing positive after, you know, a week. Um, which just keeps dragging things out. And we all have lives to get on with, don't we? It's it's a lesson in the relative importance we place on the stuff in our lives, the people in our lives, the, the stuff we've got to do, the kind of family duties we have to perform, the work duties we have to perform. It's part of being an adult, isn't it? Your priorities very often shift from yourself to... The stuff you do, the people you're in contact with, the people you care about. That's the way things are. And so when you are prevented from functioning, uh, having the life you want to have with the interactions you want to have, um, it takes its toll. I mean, I know, for example, i it's now pff, weeks, weeks. Since I actually last was able to get together with my friend, uh and I'm finding that very frustrating, and I'll be honest, a bit depressing. You know, the all these things have mental health consequences. So that's kind of the effect that coronavirus has had. But for me, as I say, mixed in with this prostat three thing and uh, prostate cancer. You know, this is something that men, particularly men of a certain age find really difficult to talk about uh but it happened to me and it's happened to you know i've I've made a series of youtube videos about my prostate cancer journey and it got phenomenal responses uh and you know a lot of guys confessed to me oh well gosh thanks for talking about this henry it's something i've always felt awkward about but actually what you've told me is really informative." and as a result i went and got myself tested and uh i feel personally uh, you know that uh, i feel great about that that i managed to pass on information that was literally critically important for the continued health of a number of people um but i'm going to remind it again if you're a man uh if you're a white guy aged 50, 55 plus. Um, if you're a black guy aged probably 45 plus, because it's just the way things are with nature, biology, go and get yourself tested. All right? Uh, if you are the spouse, lover, companion, partner, flatmate of an individual of that description, um you might want to bring up the subject with them. Oh, have you ever had a, what's called a PSA blood test? Prostate-specific antigen, PSA blood test. Uh, most of them will go, what are you talking about? Uh, let's just, I'm going to put it in succinct terms. This is a blood test, a very simple blood test that can save your life. I'm type 2 diabetic, and I was incredibly lucky that when I was, it was a couple of years ago, obviously two, three years ago, when I went for a regular checkup to do with my type 2 diabetes, part of which is they do a blood test to check for your blood sugar levels and various other things. And in the follow up meeting, a wonderful nurse who was incredibly thorough and meticulous about making sure every time she saw me, she there's a list of questions they have to, should go through. And she was great, took her time and just made sure that I properly answered every single question on that list. And the very last question was, well, OK, all those things sound great. Is there anything else you can think of that has changed since the last time we spoke? And I said, well, I might be imagining things but I think it's taken me a bit longer to have a pee than previously. And she said, oh, we'll just take a bit more blood from you. That blood test saved my life because it showed up the fact that I had very elevated PSA levels in my blood. And that then triggered a sequence of events of going for check up with the doctor who, yes, inserted a finger up my rectum because you can reach your prostate, gland. Uh, that led him to say, oh, yeah, that's not entirely normal. Uh, I think what we should do is send you for a biopsy and the biopsy, which was a weird experience, I'm not going to talk about it now, um, but it basically... Proved beyond any shadow of a doubt that I had prostate cancer, and I actually had a very aggressive form of prostate cancer that had already moved outside what's known as the capsule of the prostate itself and into at least one of my lymph nodes, and therefore was, you know, basically racing away um, and uh, was in danger of what's called metastasizing, which is basically spreading around your body, and then you really are in trouble and it had a very high, what's known as a Gleason count, which is a measure of how aggressive and how fast the cancer was growing. So thanks to that lovely nurse. Hello, Elizabeth, if you're listening. That lovely nurse who just was very thorough and made me feel like she wasn't in a rush because this is one of the problems at the moment with the health service under pressure, particularly, of course, since COVID, well, first of all, getting to meet someone face to face, there's the thing, and secondly, you know the time pressure on the medical staff, nurses, doctors, whatever. You know, but she didn't make me feel pressurized at all. Like, take the time. Is there anything else you can think of? That question and the answer I gave saved my life. So, guys, get yourself checked. But this is, I, I just, you know, the point of this. It's not just a prosetilise about, get yourself checked, guys. It's also just something that definitely doesn't seem to get talked about. The effects, not only of the radiotherapy, which are pretty well covered, and certainly in the videos I made, but the effects of this PROSTAP3 drug, which uh, varies entirely from individual to individual. This I now know. There are people I know who've had prostate cancer and were on PROSTAP. And within about a month of their last dose of the drug, we're kind of getting back to normal. You know, emotions more under control. And we've got to talk about this. We're noticing a return of their libido. Because obviously, if you've got no, no testosterone in your system, guys, it basically means... You completely lose interest in sex um it's a you know it's a very interesting kind of process uh you because effectively you you kind of become like a menopausal woman and and suddenly you do i can tell you you really do appreciate uh the female experience much more uh you come to certainly appreciate what it's like to be a menopausal woman and it's no joke guys i can tell you fortunately i had was given tablets to get rid of the hot flushes because they were awful but um yeah the total loss of libido from uh, in a man's situation on prostat um it's a very strange thing in some ways it's been interesting and in some ways because of other stuff that's been happening in my life i could say i could count it as a bit of a gift because it's made certain situations easier uh certain work i was having to do psychologically uh has was probably made easier by the removal of any kind of toxic masculinity Um, One of my friends is actually uh, a a lecturer in psychology and uh, looks after PhD students and um, she asked me an interesting question related to some research that some of them were doing about how on a scale of zero to 10, you know, uh, where zero is, I feel, no level of masculinity whatsoever. I feel completely what androgynous or whatever the word would be to 10 where I feel oh yes I'm Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of thing you know yes Mr. Testosterone Mr. kind of lustful male being where on that scale do I lie and I thought oh that's an interesting question and the answer has been for the last couple of years mm, I suppose middling around a seven-ish, something like that. Uh, I would say I used to be kind of a, definitely a nine or ten. You know, I've got a feminine side, always have had, but I was always very aware of my masculinity, of my sex drive, that kind of thing. Whereas most of the time now, I would say, you know, seven-ish, quite often a six. I can tell you that yesterday morning, I think I must have been about a 3 I realized that, wow, I had no sense of masculine bravado about the situation whatsoever. That's, I, and I, I'm not scared to admit that, you know, I was just, it's just kind of a scientific fact. Oh, gosh, yes, for a couple of hours yesterday morning, I felt next to no, I mean, maybe three, even too generous, maybe kind of a two or a one even, but. I was very I wouldn't have looked at me from outside saying, oh, there's a guy who's upset about something. It's like, oh, there's there's a person who's upset about something, but doesn't appear to be portraying any kind of masculine bravado or kind of, yes, I'm I'm just going to tough this out kind of thing. No. And this is, you know, something else, you know, another good reason fellas, for getting yourself checked really early. Because I was on this Prostap drug for, well, a couple of years. And obviously, the longer you're on a drug like that, the more long-lasting its effects are. And from what I know, I mean, I, I've I've actually contacted the Macmillan uh, organization, which is a charity, a cancer charity, and had a chat with one of their kind of counsellors um early last week about you know could you give me any kind of guidance about when this is likely to stop and she said i'm terribly sorry but it is completely individual some people they're kind of back to normal within say a month after the treatment ends there are other people who are still waiting years later and for me it's about 6 7 months now with no sign whatsoever of any kind of diminution of the power of prostat uh so I'm obviously having to find my own coping mechanisms to deal with that, and uh that's something you know so pff, thank goodness I've been doing all the psychology work <laughs> over the last year or so that I have been doing um because it's all been incredibly useful and I've learned a huge amount and I'm now kind of coming to terms with the fact that, well, for the time being, this is who I am. Uh, and I can't turn the clock back two and a bit years or whenever it was before they gave me my first ProStap tablets, which was was September 20, uh, I've lost, you know, I've lost track of time, September 2019, something like that. Uh, when I got the diagnosis, wasn't it? Um, And that's just what I've got to live with. So I'll keep you updated, folks. And if there are any of you listening to this who've been in a similar situation, if there are any of you listening to this who've had prostate cancer and have experienced this drug and its after effects as well as side effects, I, you know, do get in touch. Uh, I would love to hear what your experience has been uh and for those of you who are living with someone who is experiencing these effects, I hope maybe this can help you to kind of understand what it's like on the inside of this situation. It's very, very peculiar anyway uh. That's enough for this time, and let's head off now to the interview with Anne Goodwin, who's an absolutely fascinating lady. It was really lovely to chat with her. Enjoy the rest of the show. If you're enjoying the show, please consider subscribing via your normal podcast player, such as Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon, or Spotify. You can also support the show directly via our coffee page at ko-fi.com/insideyourhead all one word that's coffee.com/insideyourhead where you can make donations in multiples of just 3 pounds the equivalent of a cup of coffee all donations are gratefully received and go directly to the production costs of the show thank you Hello everyone and welcome to the interview section of Inside Your Head episode 12 and we're recording this on the 25th of January 2022 and yes the pandemic is still sort of ongoing with Omicron or whatever we're all getting to know the Greek alphabet aren't we Uh, but fortunately uh, the effects of it seem to be less than they have been for some of the previous variants, and I'll be talking a bit about that in my introduction. But today, I've got someone on the show who actually approached me, which is rather lovely, and I'm absolutely delighted because this lady has got the most extraordinary background. She used to be a clinical psychologist in a long-stay psychiatric hospital, what probably in the old days would have been called an asylum, I'm sure, but is now uh, a writer. She's an author with three novels to her name and a short story collection, and she seems to be doing extremely well. So I'm absolutely delighted to introduce to you Anne Goodwin. Hello there, Anne.
1: Hello, Henry. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you very much. If you're getting in touch, you're exactly the kind of person who I think, yes, my listeners will be fascinated by someone like that. That's absolutely wonderful. And uh, perhaps we should uh, explain to uh, overseas visitors who might not be particularly familiar with access you're from a different part of the country than I am that's for sure aren't you Anne so tell us a bit about your background where you're from originally what kind of a a brief overview what kind of life and education and career you've had to date Um, and we've got to include the fact that you're actually a park ranger in the Peak District which is absolutely fantastic so tell us a bit about yourself then Anne. Yeah thanks
1: Um, so I was Grew up in the non-touristy part of Cumbria, which is, verges um, on the the English Lake District, um, which ac- partly accounts for my accent. However, it has mellowed a lot over the years. As when I went first went to university in the mid seventies, and I met people from the, the south of, of England, um, yeah. they couldn't understand what I was saying, and now <laughs> I understand them. Yeah. So it did have have to change. So yeah, I went I went to Newcastle University. I studied mathematics and psychology. Wow. Then I went straight from that and did a PhD in psychology with um, Dr. Now Professor Mark Williams, who you might have come across as oh, yeah. well known. Well, he's he's preeminent. He's kind of done He's yeah. Mr. Mindfulness or rather Professor Mindfulness. And at that time, um, he was at the beginning of, of his sort of, I mean, he'd, he'd done his, his trip. But it, I was his first PhD student,
2: oh, right. uh,
1: which was quite an honour. And um, we were studying. Um, cognitive understandings of, of depression
3: right.
1: so I yeah I, I did my PhD he was determined that I would get through it uh, more confident that I would, would than, uh, than I was myself and right. then I went I did I, from that I did training in
0: clinical psychology wow so you're actually a doctor technically
1: I am yeah 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 but oh, I mean I don't I did use that title when I worked in in the NHS where it was appropriate, but given that some people have got PhDs in creative writing and and I don't, I I forget, to be honest, I forget that I've (laughs) I've got it, you know, but I mean, obviously, you know, I worked hard to get it, but it's one of those things where, um, you know, it it feels so important at the time and then you moved on to another phase of your life and, you know, it's, it's different yeah yeah I mean, and it, also
0: because because of the environment you've worked in the, the 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 title doctor of course would be confusing to some people because there's doctors of medicine and doctor of philosophy which is presumably what you were
1: yeah yeah it, it could be confusing um but it also sort of like represented the status that um mm. i mean it's still sort of like a very hierarchical system where the yeah. psychiatrists were the, the, the head and yeah. um We sort of liked to to challenge that a bit. (laughs) We we were real doctors. And and then, of course, it changed, but but it's also an extra confusion because within clinical psychology, now the training is a taught doctorate, whereas my doctorate is a PhD by research. um, and, And my training in psychology at that time was an MSc. So, right. so you know, we're always out to sort of confuse people as as much as we. can. Yeah,
0: sure, but but basically, you, you you're you're very modest about it, but you've got letters dripping after your name.
1: Well, um, yeah, in it... fact, in fact, you've reminded me. I can't forgotten. I actually have four degrees.
0: Really? Uh, <laughs> wow.
1: So I did. I did the BSc. You know, uh, um, then my PhD. Then an MSc in clinical psychology, which was my professional qualification. And then I did an MA in organisational consultancy, which was a a part-time course at the Tavistock clinic in conjunction with the University of East London. So I did that much more recently. I I think I got that in the year 2000. So, but wow. but yeah you know that's,
0: that's, fantastic that's that's amazing that's brilliant I mean it, I think uh, listeners we can we can kind of take it from there that she knows her onions guys well, <laughs> As we me, I can
1: still I can still make a fool of myself quite easily <laughs> and I'm actually much much better at writing stuff down than I am at, at Fantastic.
0: Well, you're doing fine so far. Now, uh, in amongst that, okay. So, uh, where whereabouts do you live now? Then now
1: I live um, more or less in the middle of England.
0: Right.
1: Uh, But for obviously listeners, we need to stress that that is is. I'm talking about England and not the whole of the UK. And Scotland is not part of England. Yeah. Um. And so it's almost far from the sea as it's possible to get, which is is unfortunate. But otherwise, um, I mean, the, the um, landscapes, the literary landscapes, near, quite near to um, where the poet Lord Byron grew up at Newstead Abbey oh, and also sort of the other end of the social scale, um, not far from D.H. Lawrence. Oh, wow. And I actually remember when I was reading um, D.H. Lawrence in, in my teens, I really struggled with the accent it didn't it didn't make sense to me yeah. and now it's um now i hear it all around me so it's
0: fantastic of,
1: but the other, yeah the other thing is, is um you asked about my work as so I, mean, I mean this is a volunteer role in the peak district national park as as a ranger and um in normal times i would go out every every other sunday walk around a patch and sort of theatre both to help people out and to remind them of some of the rules and regulations of of, of being in the Park. But I also lead a walk through, a literary walk, which suits me down to the ground, through Jane Eyre territory. Now, most people know of the Charlotte Bronte wrote wrote Jane Eyre, Mm. and and most people know of the, the Brontes being based in growing up in Howarth in Yorkshire mm. and their love of the moorland there mm. but Charlotte Bronte actually came to sage in Derbyshire which is it, it has, it's a village which is not so far from Sheffield yeah. um, two years before she published Jane Eyre in which was in 1847 mm. and we think, I mean, it's always contested, but that she was inspired by the landscapes there, so there's, there's oh, a, yeah. an old um, Elizabethan Tower house, an interesting building, which we think could be the kind of prototype for um, Thornfield Hall.
2: Oh, wow.
1: So, so I take people around that, that area. There's a little archway where the chapel might have yeah. been where Jane yeah, first yeah. got married. So, so, yeah, it's a very nice area, and if anybody's interested, the next one is in some in the middle of June.
0: Right. Well, we'll give your contact details at the end, and people can get in touch and book themselves in. Now, thanks for that little brief background, which is already fascinating. So, but the so basically, the majority of your career was spent working for the National Health Service. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah uh which obviously over the years has had its ups and downs we'll talk a bit about that in due course i'm sure but um you're you're a successful novelist as well we'll come to your novels a bit later in the program uh particularly uh the what i've noticed you've got your latest novel is called matilda windsor for and we're talking about that for reasons that will become apparent uh but I think that it's your career as a clinical psychologist that's obviously most apposite for this show, or all, all that time you spent doing that kind of work in, as I said, a long-term, long-stay psychiatric hospital. Um, and, uh, you know, I've made some notes here that I would say for most people that uh, even thinking about such an environment... It, can conjure up kind of nightmarish visions probably fed by Hollywood movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo Nest. Cuckoo's Nest. Um and uh as I kind of mentioned you in the notes, I've got my own demons about that. Cause when my I was very young, I was about nine or eight or nine at the time, my father, uh because technology just wasn't what it is now back then, he Was misdiagnosed and he was put in uh, an institution in Essex called Runwell. And he spent some time there until finally he got a proper diagnosis that the poor man actually had a brain tumor, which obviously affected his behavior and moods and that kind of stuff. And I can remember visiting him there as a little boy and just being terrified. It just seemed so strange and otherworldly. And obviously, there were people in that institution who. Did have uh, severe psychiatric problems, and as a little boy, that was terrifying. But of course, um, that's only one side of the story, and that's a story that I think that uh, is kind of uh, been popularized, as I say, in literature and movies and that kind of stuff. Which isn't necessarily the case because these places were created to help people. That's the that's the idea behind it. And you must have been inspired you know, and motivated uh, enough to feel that there, there was a contribution to be made to then, you know, end up working in a place like that for such a long time. So I think what I can ask you to do, Anne, first of all, is to, if you like, tell the real story about these kind of places, right? Um, because, you know, life is full of stories and we all create our own stories, don't we, about, you know, and that can become our own reality of course that's something that you know fascinates me so perhaps you could give us some background about you know the kind of place that you worked in and the reality of what it was like to work in those kind of place, that kind of place the sort of work you were actually doing Anne.
1: Yeah I mean sadly um the the kind of the got was kind of like a gothic or yeah. faith, this person and and in, it, it is actually based on re- reality, and I think it must have been horrendous visiting those places as as a child, really. Yeah. And I've, and since I've published my novel, Matilda, winds is coming home, I've heard of of other people so visiting parents there, and and also sort of other misdiagnoses. Um, mm. but it was it was there were quite horrible places even for people who were correctly diagnosed. Mm. And the thing, I mean, I won't go too much into the, into the history, but the thing about they were set up to help people, but only to a quite a limited extent, actually, that mm-hmm. um, in the, the mid-19th century, the, there was a, an act passed to, to require um, all parishes to, to uh, well, not parishes at a, bit, at a higher level than that, but to, to build these mm-hmm. institutions. And they started off. Really small scale of maybe mm. about forty, or you know, up to a hundred people maybe. Mm. And they employed, you know, I mean, quite magnificent buildings. They, they employed, mm. or, you know, famous art architects to to design them. Mm. Um, but they kept adding to them, you know, and some of the yeah. early ones actually had to close down, to and they built new ones to to replace them. But but in fact. I mean, you know, you say about the stories that are told yeah. about it and, and one story and the story that I've been looking at most recently was actually that they knew right from the start that they weren't going to work because there had been asylums in the past, private ones, which were not um, not effective. And there was one model which was, was developed by uh, the Tuke family who established the Yacht right. Retreat. But then, which was about sort of like social interactions and things like that. But they had to be small scale. And they mm-hmm. were the only method that was actually effective in caring for people. So it's amazing that they continued for for so long.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: when I worked there, I mean, I worked my sort of like about half of my career as a clinical psychologist was in the, the stay Hospital. And then I moved to another job, which was working with people who had actually been discharged from the that right. in that area so i worked in a in a Lonsdale hospital from about the mid 1980s to uh, late 1990s and at that yeah. time i actually didn't i my first job was a split between two posts so so mm. part of my time was based in community and it was that actually that attracted me more than to work in the right. institution. Like There was a lot of, I don't know, the sort of like the stigma of the patients that's carried into the staff. And it was certainly for psychologists at the time, it wasn't a, a, an attractive place to work because of mm. I think the psychiatry power and, thing, you know, we had more autonomy mm. within the community. But at that time, that it, the closure programs were already underway. I mean, it was it was government policy since um, the nineteen fifty nine Mental Health Act to actually move resources into the community. But it was another twenty five years before any of the hospitals closed, which shows yeah. what a, a mass. I mean, there was resistance, obviously, which yeah. shows what a massive undertaking it, it was.
2: Mm. So.
1: It was. I mean, there were there were depressing aspects of it because there were still these long stay wards where with with mm. um, people who'd been there for decades, mm. and I um I mean some of that has actually sort of made it into into my novel. Um, right. but I remember when I was first arrived, um, in, in part my induction, I went mm. to visit one ward which was um, a lot of elderly ladies were uh, resident there. Mm. And the the ward sister was talking to me in the office, and this series of of little old ladies would come up to the door, and mm. she would just kind of dismiss them away or ignore them until they got bored and and disappeared. So right. no, no, no uh, interaction until one came, and um, she got her to sing a nursery rhyme for me. For right. me. And I thought, oh, what. What have I come to? And it yeah, was harder yeah. here, you know. That I mean, and yeah. we had a lot of the uh, staff that were as, as institutionalized as, as the patients, but you know, that, mm. that kind of approach which um, actually contributes to people's disabilities, really. Yes. Uh, and that is, has made into my, no, my novel. There right. was also sort of, you know, a lot of practices that were. Um, more for the convenience of the staff than for, for the, the patients. Yeah. Like, for example, I mean, there are 60-odd references to tea in my novel, Matilda Winter is Coming Home, because tea was very important within the institutions. <laughs> but whereas the staff could choose how we would have ours, and we could even have, choose to have coffee... The Mm. patients would be served uh, from a big pot with the tea and milk and sugar already added to the the pot. So they'd lost the capacity for even the basic choices, really. So it it was a disabling regime. But I was very lucky. I think that um, I was part of, of a very strong, optimistic team with um, mostly sort of led by its quite charismatic experienced nurses Mm. who um, were determined to make things better for people while they were in the institution, Mm. but also um, commissioning the new services to to support people when they were transferred out of the hospital. So uh, the the job was really, um, yeah, it was very enjoyable because it was you know it was being part of a a positive change it was it was a privilege to be part Mm. of that perhaps we were kind of naive because we actually didn't know (laughs) this thing would 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 actually change things or improve things that Mm. much um so my work would, would range from a lot of sort of clinical work of you know talking with patients, helping to, them to mm. recover some of their lost skills through very basic behavioural programmes or you know, discussions mm. around choices and just mm. learning the concept of, of choice. Um I did a fair amount of of training with, with the, the staff, sort of devising teaching mm. programs. Around, uh, research and mm. um was involved in, in planning and commissioning the, the future services so it was a very varied job mm. and, and quite a, um an exciting one at that sort of early stage of, of my career but yeah, yeah. It, and and in some ways um it's easier to to look back so if you're there as a member of staff, obviously you know saw a yeah. lot of um, injustices, and yeah. you would know, we, act on, on them. But and even so, when you when you're there as a member, of, you're part of that system, which is also of
0: course, yeah,
1: people, and there are blind spots, really. Mm. So it, revisiting it, um, what tw- twenty, 30, well, thirty years later, in terms of when the, the my novel mm. set. Could
0: sort of like emphasize different different aspects. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what I wanted to ask you well, there's a couple of, quite a few things I want to ask you, but I mean, the first thing I want to ask you was whether uh, you actually specialized in any particular form of psychology or psychotherapy. I mean, were you a cognitive behavioral therapy person or a humanistic counselor or uh, you know, into transactional analysis? Was there anything in particular that you specialized in? It?
1: Um psychologists quite liked the uh, capacity to be eclectic. We were, so we were, <laughs> so, and part of it, it was really sort of like for practical purposes that we would draw yeah. on different models according to the, to the needs of the person.
2: Yeah. But,
1: it, but we were also influenced by what was fashionable at the time. So yeah. um, cognitive behaviour therapy was becoming more widely used um, and you know that had been my kind of research previously, um, but my personal interest, although it sort of didn't so more indirectly affected the the mm. work that I did, and perhaps really affected the work that I did with in staff support, was the mm. psychoanalytic models of right uh, uh, on a sort of a it's called a. a, a the um, object relation skill, the language for, for psychoanalytic stuff is is awful. It's, <laughs> oh, it's so awful. I know.
0: I'm learning that. I'm learning. Yeah, that. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, it's just so so off putting, but but practic- But it does have practical uses, which yeah. um, and it is, I guess, because it is. It's looking at things that are actually very very complex.
2: Yes, whereas yes.
1: a lot of the way that psychology particularly has been used as it's become more widespread spread across the NHS, it is quite superficial, really.
0: Right. So you're feeling that there's been a kind of dumbing down to an extent?
1: Yes. Yes, to a degree, to a degree. I mean, probably not in the way that individuals practise, but um, mm. if they have the time. But the, there was this new initiative improving access to psychological therapies in in the NHS, um, mm. which was great because it made it more available to more people. Mm. However, yeah. what it was introduced in it, I mean, I think the fir- the various levels and and you'd be at level four, I think, before you get to a psychologist. I mean, it didn't right. affect me because I it was in, introduced in a different specialism. And mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, it was quite close to when when I was was leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, but but there's the first stage. It's that kind of like computerized therapy, and and mm-hmm. then there's it's manualized, so there's less creativity, there's less individuality. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there there are good things, obviously, of like some things that people might have not been aware of, but um. But yeah, I I think there's a, a dumbing down.
0: Yeah, well as with everything in life now there's an app for that you know and one of the things i was looking at before you know talking to you is just having a look around oh my goodness me there's umpteen apps now where you've got the effectively a a robot therapist uh who you know will help you know cheer you up or whatever or of course then there's apps where you can actually get to well not to talk to but text with someone who really is a psychiatrist or something goodness knows where in the world they could be in the philippines or they could be in barnsley you just don't know uh, and it's quite interesting um obviously i think because of the covid pandemic lots of people suddenly became conscious of oh i don't feel right i'm not happy about this and a lot of people's mental health has been affected in one way or another uh and in fact right back episode one where i talked to dr lawrence baldwin who's uh you know teaches psychiatric nursing uh had fascinating conversation with him about the kind of different ways that different people have been affected by the confinement of the pandemic and you know all their normal behaviors have been restricted uh but um yeah so i kind of see where you're coming from there and i because i went and tried one and it was like uh, very standardized answers there's not much kind of real genuine personal interaction going on very much stock responses uh designed i think for people who are a great deal younger than i am <laughs> you know that kind of uh rather glib sort of street talk response which like yeah does not work for me doesn't work for me but anyway one of the things i'm interested in because of course you as i say that this main thing you worked in a in a, a long stay psychiatric hospital um and i think that a lot of people would be interested to know okay so what kind of illnesses do the people have which means that they need to go for that kind of long-term psychiatric care rather than just seeing you know the local therapist or counselor or even gp you know what kind of problems would people have that would lead them to need that kind of long-term care?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, that none of them would actually need to be in that institution because they actually they would be better helped outside. But but aside from that, I mean, it's like, like about, I think it's about one in four of us who would have a, a common mental health problem, there, like anxiety, right. de- depression right. or something, something like that. Right. Um, And maybe it's about one in 100 who would have a serious mental health issue, um, which is often under the, the the headline of of psychosis, and these are often people who are. Um, I mean, it, it it's actually very very difficult to 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 pin down because the, the psychiatric language, I don't feel is a, appropriate, but the psychological language is lo- a lot about sort of oh they experience these odd things, mm-hmm. which sometimes sort of like too makes it too normalised. But it's really often people who who are out of touch with what we would call our ordinary reality, consensus mm-hmm. reality, mm-hmm. Um, and but again that's difficult because a lot of of people are quite out, in, but <laughs> a lot continue because of their yeah. their beliefs, political, religious, or whatever beliefs are, are yeah. um, endorsed by the, the yeah. people in power, um, but. But the, but I think it's sort of like that it, it would impact much more on um more aspects of their life, their relationships or uh,
2: jobs, mm.
1: and and sort of you know just get, getting on with, with life. And to, you know, I mean, if you think about one common experience of people would be hearing voices of, right. you know, of, of, of a voice that's sort of someone who isn't isn't there. And mm. if you think about, we used to we used to have an exercise that we did in training where you, you'd um, somebody would come up and whisper things in somebody's ear while mm. they were trying to hold a, a conversation. Like you know, imagine if, you know if that was yeah,
2: yeah.
1: to us now. So you can think about how distracting that must be, how difficult mm. to get on with your life when that is happening. Mm. And that is a is a is a very um, a very. Common in experience and that that mm. um, other people have, have have sort of like generally false beliefs but so its sort of yeah it's sort of mm. like anomalous sens- sensations and the the people you know the people that you see uh shouting in the mm. street and, and the, 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 i mean sometimes people can be quite scary as well yeah. as well, Yeah. Mm. yeah.
0: Yeah. And uh, I mean, a lot of people, I think, I've uh, heard about, don't really know what they necessarily are, hallucinations. I mean, is that what kind of thing would lead to someone having hallucinations? Yeah. Uh it would that would be like a chemical imbalance because obviously certain drugs can induce hallucinations, can't they? Like LSD or whatever. So, what kind of problems would lead to someone actually hallucinating?
1: Yeah, so so hallucinations might I mean, commonly um, like auditory hallucinations, like they hearing voices. Right. Other times, people might have strange sensations or seeing things, but 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 um, yeah, sort of like, commonly hearing voices, and. I mean, a range of reasons, as you say, that that um, they can be caused by, by drugs. So obviously, brain chemistry mm. is involved at some level. Mm. The psychiatric model overemphasizes that because if we look back, a lot of people um, are um, hearing voices of people who have abused them in the past and it happens a lot to to survivors of of childhood sexual abuse which was very much brushed under the carpet in the past partly through ignorance and partly because they didn't you know people didn't want to know um so when i started working um as a psychologist in the mid-1980s um and if people present wanted to talk about their voices or they presented with uh, these odd beliefs, delusions, you know, like oh, mm. I haven't got my body or whatever. The the yeah. standard, the the proper practice was that you were supposed to ignore ignore it. And, oh my goodness. Because it was kind of the the the, 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 the sense was that this was um an unwanted, an undesirable behaviour. I mean, certainly it makes yeah. people look very odd, you know, it's like yeah, yeah. Of the streets sort out of are doing, doing that. Mm. Um, so, and, and we was, within psychology at the time, there mm. was still a lot of emphasis on the behavioural model, which mm. you know, came from Pavlov's dogs and yeah, the work yeah. with pigeons pecking at different buttons, which <laughs> yeah. Yeah, has it is used? as, you know, can be extremely valuable. So, so the idea was, if you didn't encourage them, if you didn't give them attention, they would kind of fade, fade away, which is a <laughs> crazy kind of magical thinking, really. You yeah, know, because yeah. these are people's most cherished beliefs. They yeah. wanted help. They were yeah. desperate to communicate it, and they were they were being ignored. So one of the the lovely things really um, about the time that I worked, you know, I, I talked about sort of mm. like changes in the institution, for, you know, mm. from the institutional model to the community, but mm. also uh, they developed a much more psychological model of of trying at least to engage with 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 people's odd mm. experiences and and mm. odd verbalization. So you do, you know, you actually. Have a conversation about people's voices. Where did how mm. you know, and really go into a lot of detail about well, where did they, mm. you know, what, how often did they hear them at certain times of day? Was there mm. one voice? Was there, you know, was there was that a voice they recognized, etc. And you know, similarly with with kind of what we would call delusional beliefs, mm. um, and partly, um, yeah, that that was mostly I think led by. Psychologist, and also by the service user movement, who right. um, were actually great as as colleagues because there were people mm. with, within that who were strong enough to say, "Well, actually, we're not mad; we're angry, yeah. and you know, we have a, a voice, and we, you know, we will be listening to." and mm. And that is still very much needed. But there's much more i mean some of it's lip service, but there is mm. much more willingness within services to collaborate with with mm. and there's there's a kind of hearing voices network, which right. was, um i believe developed by a uh, a man i mean i i did 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 meet him but I'm just, you know trying to think about who i'm not quite sure who developed it, but
2: mm. who
1: who heard. Voices of somebody who had sexually abused him as, as a, right. a child, and, and what he developed was a way of not obliterating that but managing it. So, of so actually mm. setting aside some time when he would
2: mm.
1: talk to the, the voices, which works you know, work, does work for some, it wow. doesn't kind of all interfere. And the other thing uh, is just that basic sort of coping mechanisms so that you don't seem so odd outside. Yeah. You talk to them. It was like um, when what we called at the time mobile phones came in. Yeah. It was really useful because people could go like they talk, talking on their yes, phone. Yes, of course.
0: You know. Yeah.
1: I mean, and I still notice people, you know, people who are talking on their phone with headphones. And- I know,
0: that's really weird, isn't it? It looks like and they're talking to they, yeah, themselves. Yeah, well, then are you notice your got- voices, but- Yeah. So that's really interesting that that's uh, one area of uh, the, you know, mental health service that you feel you witnessed definite improvements in i mean was there anything in particular you felt like that there were any particular new therapies that were developed or new practices or whatever that that you feel yeah that's worthwhile that has been a change for the better for the person who you know something that gets banded about a lot i notice even on twitter where i'm fairly active people and i've been talking about a lot about my own lived experience with certain Things and that even uh, therapists themselves are now coming out of the woodwork and saying, "Well, actually, you know, hey, I- I'm not in uh, you know, a pure why. I've had this lived experience of something in particular that's happened to me, whether it's depression, anxiety, or you know, abuse as a child, or whatever it happens to be. Um, you know, grief. You know, the way that people are handling grief, particularly in the time of the pandemic, where certainly the first part of the pandemic." all those poor people who couldn't visit their dying relatives, you know, and that is, I think, they are going to leave a legacy that's going to, you know, the nation, the world is going to have to deal with down the line at some point. So is there anything that you feel, as I say, that you felt like actually that was really good, that was really worthwhile? I,
1: I think just following on from, from that kind of, yeah, the, the general... The pro- general moral openness around mm. around mental health issues. I mean, it, it almost comes to the, the idea that It's like it's a badge <laughs> to wear, and if you haven't got one to present, or you <laughs> don't want to talk about it. You can't. You yeah. sort of can't fit, fit in. I mean, I, that, that's not not true. There is still that 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 stigma. Mm. But I think I mean that, that one of the reasons that I value that the, the um, psychoanalytic Models is that they kind of acknowledge that right from the start. You know, they're, they're all mm. wounded people who go into mm. in go into sort of like most kinds of human services. Really, that we're mm. doing it as a, as a, in not only this, but as a way of as, or as an alternative to taking care of ourselves, mm. and that that is a sort of quite quite a strong motivation of about why. You put up with a lot of, yeah. which you know, quite, quite, quite challenging work. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, that 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 openness, I think, is 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 great. Um, the CBT use with with psychosis, particularly, I think, mm-hmm. is um, definitely, yeah, definitely well. And closing the the mm-hmm. institutions, I think, is was positive. But then the mm-hmm. the services that have replaced them are are far from perfect Mm. and people i think people work kind of worry about um it more Mm. not because people are getting a worse deal but because they're actually more visible you know and and that that, and that well it's for us us as a society to to, to take care of what i think we you know like the 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 things with the, the pandemic what 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 worries me is that I don't see that kind of spreading across to that. It's sort of mental health is is everyone's concern, and everyone has. Mm. Most people have got mental health challenges, mm. and most mental health issues can be related to adverse circumstances. You know, yeah. like, uh, but but the the the. The rhetoric that I hear, you know, how it's talked about in relation to the pandemic is, yeah, there's going to be a rise in mental illness. Well, that is one way of of talking about it.
2: Mm -hmm. But
1: isn't it just straightforward that when bad things happen to people, we struggle? It's kind of of fundamental. I don't think, somehow I don't think we've got that as a, a... as a service, you know, as a a society. And the other thing Mm. that I think is missing is um, sufficient attention to early years, development, infancy, which is, again, Mm. something that is is emphasised within psychoanalytic models. It's Mm. caricatured as, you know, like it's about blaming mothers. And it (laughs) often is about... You know, like I went in yeah, yeah. my therapy because I wanted to talk about my mother. But it, yeah. it's mothers because, you know, it, the answer to that is not, well, we'll, we'll, we'll hide it away. The answer yeah. to it is actually supporting
2: yeah.
1: parents of all genders yeah. to give the child the attention that they need at that stage of their life. Yeah. And however that is is done, you know, the answer isn't to... to you know, ban women from the workplace, mothers from the workplace, because mm. if that, if that's where they want to be, they won't be giving their, their, their child a good a good experience. Yeah, and I think I think I think it is very very it's it it's economically and psychologically and, and kind of stupid because we don't, mm. we we could <laughs> put money and yeah. and there was money, you know. Tony Blair's and yeah. put money into sure start sentences, centers, yeah. Sentence, which, which was a part of that. I mean, I would want to see a lot, a lot more, yeah. But you know, non stigmatizing services to support yeah. parents and babies through yeah. those crucial first three years, and that's not there, it, you know, it's still
0: absolutely it's
1: still very much that the the problem is located within the individual rather mm. than within the, the context of us
0: yeah yeah i mean th- this is fascinating on so many levels i mean <clears throat> we're kind of skipping here to a point i was going to make uh, later in the show which is you're you're kind of a, a bit of a moral crusader a kind of an activist aren't you which we're going to you know we'll talk about your writing in just a second uh and you uh i, I mean it's great You're highlighting kind of injustices in the system and stuff. Um, And uh, something you mentioned about uh, uh, is toxic positivity uh, in, in, you know, can you explain what you mean by toxic positivity?
1: I can, well, sort of, perhaps. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, first of all, I mean, I think it's a bit grandiose, isn't it, to say like, like I'm a moral crusader? But there is, I think, a, a, a thing of like fiction can communicate ideas and can, yeah. and can highlight um, or help combat stigma and injustice. Yeah. Um, but toxic positivity is, is something that has um, affected me personally, and it's effect- I've seen it affected in my, in my patients. The mm. clients that I've worked with and people generally, I think that that um, positive, I mean, it's very difficult to sort of like be saying I'm going to criticize being positive because being positive is actually quite good, really. And you know, it, it can be helpful to us to remember what, what we've got rather than what we've yeah, lost, yeah. etc. And there are lots of stuff out there mostly from psychology of of looking at you know how we can make ourselves feel, feel feel better which mm. is is a marvelous thing. However, it too much positivity and I I think it's kind of kind of the, the culture it it's kind of gone a bit far can also be be harmful. So it's when we kind of feel guilty for having mm kind of negative emotions bad feelings about about things mm. or you know feeling sorry for ourselves and mm. it's when say like someone else um someone tries to cheer us up and actually mm. we end up feeling worse <laughs> yeah. scared, you know
0: yeah. so it's,
1: I was gonna you know it's a sunny day or you know so there are people there are always people worse off than 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 you.
0: Yeah. Oh, pull yourself together. And that's a good one.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. But but there are also more more subtle and kinder ways that that people actually mm. harm each other. I, I think mm. through that kind of positivity, and it mm. and it and it can be well intentioned. But I think it's also because it is actually very painful to sit with somebody else's pain, mm, and yeah. uh, you know that's why. Therapists get paid, for it. Sure. you know, and to and to really genuinely listen is 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 very hard, and yeah. and you and you couldn't do that for everybody. So that you know that so, but um, yeah, I mean, I'd I, I'd actually um, I don't know if you'd come across the, the term before. I actually only discovered the term a couple of two or three weeks ago. Uh, but it was something that I'd been trying to to talk to people about for right for years because because of this thing of like people saying and and some I can't remember what it was but something somebody replied to one of my newsletters and it was at Christmas time saying um, and I, I can't remember what the thing was in my newsletter it wasn't it wasn't specifically related to, mm. to this but saying oh. Um, both my parents died at Christmas. I might have been saying, what are you read, going to be reading at Christmas? And that was mm. it. So my, both my parents died at Christmas. Um, and um, she, um, But I try, you know, I try to be positive. And I just kind of thought, I just kind of wrote back very briefly and, and mm. said, oh, you know, that must make it really tough for you. Mm. Um I Wonder why you, you try to be positive, and I didn't know how she'd take that. But she came mm. back just again very briefly and said, Thank you. Nobody's ever said that to me before.
2: Mm.
3: Mm. And I,
1: I mean, I don't like Christmas anyway, but I think Christmas mm. is a terrible thing about false positivity. Really, there's yeah. such a pressure that yeah. you know, and it's an extreme version of what's yeah. around a lot of the time because how can you kind of be happy to to order. That, I mean, that isn't genuine happiness. I do think yeah. you know we should try and do what we can to, you know, to be pleasant and have pleasant yeah. times. But um those negative things are, are part of, of life, really. And yeah. it's it's naive to try and yeah. get rid of it, but but there's a pressure to do so. And again, that comes from the psycho. Analytic not model, and we're using sort of bringing together um, the the so that the both sides of ourselves, and then we actually we've got more resources to draw on. Mm. It might be more painful at uh, Mm. at times; it is, but it's actually we're more able to face reality.
0: Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with you about the christmas don't talk to me about christmas uh this one's been ghastly so don't worry but also it's that what you might call the butlin's effect kind of you will enjoy yourself right uh, I should explain to listeners overseas. Butlins is, a, is a, a it's a holiday camp company which was very famous, particularly in the kind of 1950s and 60s, where families would go and there'd be lots of organised entertainment. And I have to confess, for a while, I was a tour guide, not with Butlins, but with a coach company years ago, where I was instructed by my bosses that you know I will make my clients enjoy themselves at this particular venue, and it's like, I hated it. I hated it, and I uh, yeah. Unfortunately, I wasn't a tour guide for very long and I would never go back to doing it. hate it. Let's talk about your books, all right? Because there's three novels now. I think um, what's interesting, you can talk about the transition, you know, uh, to start with like, okay, you were a clinical psychologist. Then you decided to start writing books, you know, novels, fiction. Why? How did that come about then, Anne?
1: Yeah, well, it wasn't quite like that. I've I'd, I'd always written and told stories as a I mean, as children often do. Mm. Um, but I was perhaps doing it more strongly and continued that. Um, but didn't didn't kick take, take didn't didn't think I could mm take seriously an ambition to be a writer because what I was for was helping other people and not indulging mm. myself.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: So um, I... But... Um, I mean, another sort of continuity with, with the psychology career is that um, they're both are about character and understanding mm. what makes people tick, so that they are mm. actually very similar. And a lot of psychologists actually write fiction either after delivery oh, right. yeah, comment and um so but but for me, what made me take it seriously was when I had my um my midlife crisis when right. I had a um, a bereavement a family bereavement which had kind of brought up a lot of uh, issues for me mm. and I was at the time I was already seeing a therapist and mm. She said to me when I was at sort of like at this very low point, something around you know maybe time to sort of think about what you want for yourself, to blah, blah, that kind of thing mm-hmm. and she said, um you probably don't know what what you want, and I says, "Oh yeah, I do I want to be a writer <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was like it was a I mean, I had. It wasn't that I hadn't said it. Before. I had said it before. But I hadn't taken it seriously before, mm. but I hadn't said it to her. i had been seeing her for a couple of years at at, at least. I had an extremely mm. long, indulgent therapy, um, and she had no clue, no inkling about about mm. this. So that was the kind of little bit of nudge or permission or you know encouragement mm. to, to. Uh, To try, and I was still working at the the time, so I carved out a little bit more space and and went Mm. um, from five days a week to to four to have time for 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 Mm. writing. And it went from there, but it was actually a a lot harder than I expected. Oh yeah,
0: you
1: know, (laughs) but kind of, it's one thing writing for yourself, and writing for publication is is so much different, more complicated, and also. Yeah, how realizing how much has, you have to learn. of, of yeah. And I just thought because you know I published, you know I published theses and yeah. academic papers and you know I wrote reports, etc. for for all the time for my for my work. Um,
0: mm.
1: I thought it would be a lot easier. I don't know. <laughs> it was. It was
0: very. My, one of my favorite quotes is, "Yeah, writing is easy. You just sit at the keyboard and bleed." You know. <laughs> it's it's kind of like that the process and I and I should explain to this I have just finished an eight-year process of writing designing editing doing the layout for photography for a non-fiction book a non-fiction book which is going to be a 500 plus page monster uh but I know from my attempts at writing fiction that fiction's much harder than that so uh yeah Hats off to you. Goodness me, three novels already out of the stocks and, you know, out there. Fantastic. So tell us about, then, the first couple of novels, uh, which was Sugar and Snails was the first one, wasn't it? Which actually was shortlisted for a prize, the 2016 Polari First Book Prize, which is fantastic. And then the second book, Underneath, which is really kind of spooky and kind of like, I think will make a lot of people go, ooh, as subject matter. Tell us about those two first.
1: Yeah. Sugar and Snails um, is about a woman who's kept her past identity secret for 30 years, afraid she'll lose everything if her secret gets out. Uh, and its themes are um, adolescence and, and the difficulties of the huge change, psychological and physical changes of, of adolescence and how that is, is managed, or not managed sometimes, Um gender and I was always interested in sort of like gen you know how we determine gender right. gender gender roles and um why have we got these still strict boundaries between yeah. male and, and female that and some don't so comfortably fit within them right. and um invisible vulnerabilities so that that she had you know kept this thing hidden for all the very successfully for all all this this time as a lot of people do mm. and and particularly you know i think as i've said before people who work in human services are, mm. use their clients whatever to so they don't have to show their own own issues and yeah and that was was um shortlisted for the Polari first book Prize, which is for um any aspects of, of books fiction and non-fiction about um, the LGBT experience. All
0: right.
1: And um And my second novel, Underneath, is about a man who seeks to resolve a relationship crisis by keeping a woman captive in a, a cellar, which, of course, is a you know, straightforward thing that you would just do Do that. It, <laughs> it. It's kind of, it's a bit more it it's a bit more of a my might book you know from mm. my, my novels because a lot of people I think who might like it are put off because of that premise as you say you know that mm. it's quite not area that you necessarily want to go into. And a lot of people who like traditional thrillers don't find it too a bit too psychological. So there's 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 a right. group in the middle who who, who do like it. and um, Mm. who can take that sort of yeah he's a, he's done something terrible, um but mm. maybe we can and not but we you know we don't excuse it, but maybe we can understand that, so it's more it's mm. from his point of view and how he actually tries to justify this thing that he's done, which actually can't be justified yeah, and yeah. to him yeah. because it's yeah. it's not. Well, I, well I, it's, I don't want to give the, the resolution
0: away, but obviously, it's not a solution. A solution. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's quite interesting there because uh, one of the things that you know, even as a historian, you know, I've, I've got a history degree, you learn about some of the great leaders that we look back on and think, "Wow, they were horrible," but they didn't think they were horrible. You know, it's like that uh, that sketch, isn't it? Um, you know, oh, what, do you mean we're the bad guys? The Gestapo guy says, what, we're the bad guys, are we? And, uh, you know, we can laugh about that, but that's often true, isn't it? And I'm sure in your career, you must have encountered people who've done, you know, what most people think are awful things, but for them, it was a logical thing to have done or they felt like the right thing to have done because their reality is distorted.
1: Yeah, I mean I didn't work so much with with people who'd actually offended in 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 my work but though it it did meet some some people and and yeah mm. I mean I think know it it's difficult really um because I mean you know like do you believe in, in evil I mean and mm. I'm not sure I do but but um sometimes it's very hard to 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 understand what your work, the choices mm. that these. That, that people have, mm. have made, and they've often made bad choices, but but they've ha- often had bad things done to them before, yeah. that, and it can go back generations. Which again is is why I think we should be investing more. Yeah,
0: yeah absolutely. In early, yeah. early childhood. Absolutely. So let's talk about your most recent novel, uh, and uh, this is called Matilda Windsor, which uh the impression i get i haven't had a chance to read the novel set but it i get the impression it brings together quite a lot of the stuff that we've sort of already talked about in the show and um your uh sense that uh there are things that are if you like uh, uh, someone's experience can really affect uh, what happens to them uh, and it's uh, it, it as much to do with getting other people to understand and perhaps empathize with that experience as as anything else tell us some more about the book
1: yeah so Matilda Windsor is coming home is about a brother and sister separated for 50 years and the ideological young social worker who tries to reunite them. So it's told from those three points of view. We've got Matty, who's who's the the impatient. Um, Janice, who's a a young social worker, wants to put the world to rights and really thinks that she can and perhaps goes a bit far. Um, She's also deluded in in the way what she thinks she can achieve. And Henry, um, a man who's approaching retirement, a bit of a nimby person, but he's lost con he's, he's still um grieving or still trying to hoping that his sister who left when he was six will come back home again and he mm. can't he, he's kind of put his life on on hold because of that. So it mm. mostly takes place within the hospital but also within Henry's house house in the community. And um and and Matty um, who is really the main character, even though we, we get the story from the, the three different sides. And mm. and she's the character that I most love and that readers right. generally most, most, most love. I'm sorry to say that not everybody, Henry, you know, even if your name's... <laughs> bit, um, yeah. Not everybody's able to find sympathy for Henry, but some people right. do fight for him. Um, but what I did with with... Uh, the novel is that I wanted to make matty um genuinely uh if we call it mentally mentally ill like that you know, that mm. term so so we can see that she is disturbed and and you know is mm. is very vulnerable um mm. but she but also to make a good company for the reader mm. Mm. so She's actually someone who has what would be called grandiose delusions so that right. she has adapted to, and because of really the circumstances that mm. she, uh, the cards that she's been dealt, um, mm. to to tolerate living in this place that, so she believes that it's her family's country estate, that the nurses are her servants, that wow. the psychiatrists who interview her are journalists who want to know what the, the latest. <laughs> <was> <laughs> and Fantastic.
2: they,
1: um so, so it's all sort of like organized around her and the, the, the other patients yeah. are her are her house guests. Well, and so it, it's so she's quite charming and, in yeah. that that way, and she's she's quite funny, but yeah. And my biggest worry when I was writing, when I really I didn't set out to actually to make her funny, and my oh, right. concern when she was was, Oh, am I kind of um being disrespectful to this yeah, like, yeah. the last thing that I, I would want to do? But I think that that's not been readers' experience that they've been able to um enjoy the humour. Well, also mm. seeing the the tragedy because it goes back into you know the, mm. what happened to her before she was admitted in nineteen thirty nine. Mm. Wow. Um, and so, so, and and actually, people say that the humor actually makes the that part of the story more tolerable. That, that
2: yeah, know, sure, more bearable it
1: does actually yeah. But, and people feel quite readers feel quite indignant about you know what. Oh, it's terrible! What's happened to it to, to her? Oh. And she's not the only one. Place where the humour is as well, because as I said, um, that, that Henry and Janice both have their, their delusions, and I had um, quite a bit of fun showing up some of the craziness of the the hospital system um, as well. Like you know, the meetings where oh yeah, yeah, nothing, nothing really happens, and there are meetings in the community as well where they what. They're trying to set up a campaign against resettling um, patients into, that, into the area, right. which was, again, something that we, we faced in, in wow. my work experience.
0: I mean, I get the impression, um, I'm going to have to go away and read it, because uh, you got kind of a head start as a novelist because you really understand people. Your characterisation must be extraordinary uh and utterly utterly plausible i think that's one of those things that sometimes you can be reading a novel or watching a movie and you think yeah why have they suddenly behaved like that that doesn't make any sense you know that doesn't fit with the feeling i was getting about what this person's reality is and you can kind of spot it like a sore thumb uh whereas i would imagine you must take pride in the fact that yeah people have you understand why your characters are behaving the way they do. Um, and the other thing I wanted to kind of ask you is some uh, um talk about their characters as if at a certain point they take over. The characters almost kind of write themselves. Is that the experience you have or are you definitely, hey, I'm in control here all the way through?
1: I wouldn't say I, I don't experience it as, as strongly as they take over, but I can't do something that wouldn't work for, for them and I'm sometimes surprised the way that the the story goes and I'm sometimes surprised by things I learn about them mm. that my, I mean in going back to Sugar and Snails my first novel I was a bit shocked and I still remember it when it came to me about what had happened to my main character's father in, in oh, during yeah. the war and I thought oh yeah and it was like oh no <laughs> <laughs> Um. Yeah, yeah. I can't. Sorry, I can't remember the beginning of your question because I was going to ask. I, was, I had something to say about about that. Oh yeah, it was just really about. Yeah, Head Start. Probably yeah, Head Start in terms of character. I do do. Um, yeah. But it means I can't. I can't write um, strict thrillers. Really, where often. Not always, but often the the more about the story than, than the character. I'm more interested in character yeah. than what happens. Well, I, I mean, the character is what happens to them as, yes, as yeah. well. But, yeah, I... But, I mean, yes, I do, I do. But a lot of writers who aren't psychologists, you know, do do very well yeah. with with character also. But, yeah, that's my yeah, sure. interest, I guess.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um now, apart from the novels, you've also had a collection of short stories published. Is there a kind of a theme running through your short stories?
1: Yeah, my, my short story collection, Becoming Someone, and it came out in the same month as Michelle Obama published her um, memoir called Becoming. So oh, really? Was, not that Such there's any connection, but that, but that sense of it's about Becoming Someone. And yeah. it, it, they're really sort of a collection of um, 42 short stories about different aspects of identity right. loosely. And, and I sort of, the theme came after the, the, the stories were, were written. Um, but, yeah, I've, I've got well more than enough for a second collection <laughs> now, but I don't, I don't know whether that'll, that'll happen.
0: Are you working on another novel now?
1: Oh yes, yes, yes. Thank you for um. I so in you you mentioned it's like the pandemic and the lockdown effect. So in in the first lockdown twenty twenty, I was actually um, meticulously editing Matilda Windsor's coming home, even though it had already been edited before, and 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 then it was going to the the editor at, at my publisher. Yeah.
3: Um.
1: And that was a good distraction thing from the pandemic. And it did was, like a lot of people, I wasn't really yeah, up yeah. to creating anything new at, at that point. Yeah. Um, and then I finished it and thought, oh, what a relief. And then, like, about four days later, I, you know, I passed it on to my publisher, rather, um, and I started missing the character of, of Matty. And I started wondering um what she would be doing at this point uh-huh. in time and given that the you know the drugs she'd had and all that the life uh-huh. that she'd had I, I had assumed she would be dead but uh-huh. i thought well what if if she isn't uh-huh. and um what if she's a hundred looking forward to her 100th birthday in uh-huh. a care home so i started writing that that novel and that novel um it's current I don't know uh, about the title really. It's, it's currently called The Age of Staggered Breathing, but that might change. Um, um, and it, it's out on submission at the moment. And and how I sum that up, I mean you don't have to have read because it's 30 year gap, you know, you don't you don't have yeah, to have yeah. read the previous book. It's about a care home resident with delusions of grandeur. Who discovers she's responsible for the transatlantic slave trade?
0: Oh my goodness! Wow! Okay, well, that what a fantastic premise! <laughs> that's yeah, amazing.
1: That, that's the first one where I've actually been able to summarize it so succinctly
0: and fantastic, brilliant, fantastic. We're going to have to wrap up. We could carry on, yakking for ages. You're a fascinating woman. And there's so many things where I think, oh, we could talk loads more about that. Maybe I'll have to come back on the show some other time. But good luck with your books and your writing career. You know, it's brilliant. I I know how tough it is. So kudos to you. Where can people find you online and where's the best place for people to get hold of you?
1: Yeah, my, my website is is dot If that doesn't work so well, well it, it should work, but my near you know, I come up on Google surf, surf surfaces, searches and <laughs> and with an e Good Goodwin and and, yeah. and if you come to my website, there's there's the opportunity to find out more about my books, me and my books, um to sign up for my newsletter anybody who's interested to to do that and also that qualifies you to get a free ebook of prize winning short stories but also to find out about um what's coming next we're when there's, there's news about that
0: fantastic and i noticed actually that on your website there's a link to your website of uh it's almost like a page of links to all sorts of things and 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 i'm going to mention before you go an absolutely fascinating uh interview thing you did uh for a site called stigma fighters uh wounded healers from clinical psychology to fiction really interesting bit of background about you and yeah uh you you do appear you've, you've done some good marketing and publicity there so you do pop up in quite a lot of places fantastic and thank you so much for coming on the show it's been an absolute pleasure uh, good luck and i obviously i'm going to put links to everything that you do in the show now so people can just click on the links and off they go uh thanks so much it's been an absolute pleasure
1: thank you henry i've really enjoyed it
0: good i'm glad and i hope that the weather's decent where you are because it's cold down here no it's horrible (laughs) well get yourself a nice cup of tea thank you Anne. don't forget to stay tuned for relaxation on the beach with henry thanks for listening until next time be well This is Henry, and welcome to Relaxation on the Beach, number 12. Now today, I want to talk about friendship, and knowing that a friendship is strong and true, even at a time of crisis. But first, I invite you to relax. So, as always, find a position that's comfortable for you. Standing, sitting, lying. Eyes open or eyes closed, whatever you prefer. And we are going to just let all that tension and all that stress just melt away. Let your shoulders drop. Let your face relax, your jaw, your eyes. Let your arms hang loosely by your side. Maybe just if you're sitting, put your hands in your lap. And we're going to kick off, as always, with a couple of lovely deep breaths. And we're going to count to four on the in breath and hold it for four and release for eight. You ready? And breathing in two, three, four. Hold two, three, four, and out two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. In two, three, four. Hold, two, three, four, and out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So now just breathe normally, wonderfully relaxed. Focus on the breath your home base, or anything else you like to use as your home base. Maybe it's the feeling of where your body makes contact with the chair or the floor, or maybe there's a sound like, I don't know, an air conditioning unit, or wind in the breeze, or your cat purring. I like to focus on the breath just feeling where you feel the breath most keenly, so set up by the nostrils, top lip, so you can feel the cool air coming in as you breathe in, and then follow it all the way out again, The warmer breath as you breathe out if you get distracted, if thoughts appear, say, hello thought, thanks for dropping by. Let it go and come back to the breath. That is the practice of meditation. Don't feel like Oh my goodness me, I need to have a completely empty brain like some kind of Zen master. No. The reality is we all have intrusive thoughts. I forgot to get the milk. Ha. What was that person trying to say earlier today? Were they secretly insulting me? Ah, did I turn off the gas before I left the house? All those things, they don't matter. For the next few minutes, none of them matter. Don't try to stop them appearing in your head. Just imagine like they're clouds. You're looking up at a beautiful blue sky and occasional little clouds come across and you watch the little cloud as it drifts off out of your vision. And that's how you need to treat unwanted thoughts. Just, oh, hello, cloud. Thanks for turning up. Cheerio. <laughs> and off they go. And bring yourself back to the breath. Back to your home base. And then you can count that as a success. Ooh. I managed to do that. I let that thing go and came back to the breath. That's great. That's what it's all about. Here's a little other thing you can do. Is play a little game. So focus on the breath and just count how many in-breaths and out-breaths, so for each in-breath and out-breath count it as one, so for how many complete breaths can you just focus on the breath without anything else intruding? Should we give that a go? So, in breath and out breath. That's one. And in breath and out breath. That's two. So, I'm going to leave you for a minute and let you carry on counting for yourself and just see. How far you can take the counting before something intrudes and you have to go, Key. let's start again. Go on then, off you go. Okay, how did you get on? That was about a minute, by the way. How far did you manage to get with your counting? If you managed the whole minute without any interruptions from other thoughts, fantastic. Don't beat yourself up if you only went a few seconds before something popped into your head. That's not a problem. Did you come back to the breath and start again? Excellent. That is the practice of meditation. Acknowledging that there's other stuff in you. It's going to pop into your head. But not letting it bother you. Just let it go. Come back to the breath. Good. Now I want to talk about friendship. I am incredibly lucky. I have got... Some wonderful friends. Two in particular. They know who they are. And what's interesting is that one of them and I have been going through a similar experience just lately. I just had a positive result for COVID. And my friend... I had a positive result, COVID. First diagnosed probably about a week, 10 days ago. So we find ourselves unable to make contact with one another other than via like text messages or whatever. Very low energy. How do you maintain a meaningful friendship when... You're forced apart. I think a lot of it comes down to trust, doesn't it? Trust and knowledge that you care for one another, that you love one another, that you want to support one another. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's just the little things. Just a little boop of a text message or whatever just to let the other person know that you're there, that you care. Because friendship's a precious thing. And one of the things that's wonderful about friendship is when life gets tough it's an opportunity to discover just how deep your friendship is, how meaningful it is, how loving it is. And in fact, my friend has had a couple of pretty tough months and it's been my pleasure and privilege to be able to just do a few little things to help ease the burden for my friend. Because I know that were the boot on the other foot, she'd do the same for me. And in fact, in the past has done. That's what a real deep friendship is about. Is being able to count on someone without question, without hesitation. Just having that complete trust, knowing that. The friendship is rock solid. I've known this friend for a long time, nearly three decades, in fact, and all friendships evolve, all friendships go through changes, and all friendships sometimes are forced to confront difficulties. But a real friendship can overcome these difficulties. Because it's clear that both people involved in that relationship want it to work. Now, I count myself as extremely lucky to have a friendship like that. And so what this leads me to is gratitude. Gratitude, I think, can get used in quite trite ways of... Oh, um, well, I mean, I'm I'm sure for someone who's serious to you, it could be as easy as, yeah, I'm glad I woke up this morning when I had cancer a couple of years ago. There were some days like that. But real gratitude often... should focus on some of the real deep and meaningful things in our lives, the things that form part of the foundation of our lives, things that kind of help define who we are as people. And gratitude for something like a really deep and close friendship is profound in the same way as gratitude for a deep and meaningful relationship with a partner is profound and i'm very lucky that i do have a very deep and meaningful relationship with my partner as well and i have at least one other friend with whom i am i have a very deep and close friendship which i'm also profoundly grateful these are the rocks of our life but when stormy seas arrive we can cling onto those rocks they are there for us they give us a you know a solid ground that we can climb out onto and we must not fritter those friendships relationships away we must make the effort always to let those people know how much we care for them how much they mean to us Life's short it really is if you have the opportunity to tell to show someone how much you care for them don't waste that opportunity because if you don't, that way lies regret, and I certainly don't want to end my days with regret. So I do my best to always let those people know how much I love and care for them in every way I can. So let's... Bring the session to a close with a couple more lovely big deep breaths. All right. So breathe in, two, three, four, and hold. Two, three, four, out. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. Eight in two, three, four, hold two, three, four, and out two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So now you might want to wiggle your fingers and toes, gently, slowly open your eyes. Take a few normal deep breaths and get ready to head back to your day. Thanks for listening. Until next time, be well. This podcast was produced by Henry Hyde. Copyright Henry Hyde twenty twenty two If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing via your normal podcast player such as Apple, Google, Spotify, or Amazon. You can also support the show directly via our coffee page. That's ko-fi.com slash inside your head, all one word. That's coffee.com slash inside your head where you can make donations in multiples of just three pounds the equivalent of a cup of coffee all donations are gratefully received and go directly to the production costs of the show thank you